0: Our Father, we thank you that among the many voices we will hear today, we have the opportunity now to hear your voice speaking to us through scripture. We pray that we would be attentive to the words that you speak to us, attentive to this psalm before us. We pray that you would use it to shape us, to make us those who are faithful to you in all that we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... You may have picked up from uh, the reading of the psalm that it wasn't David's happiest time of life. Um, He's getting it in the neck from various people. And uh, there's a lot of unfair criticism going on. And somebody once said, I just came across this this morning, that to avoid criticism, there are just three things you need to do. Okay, most of us don't like criticism. We'd we'd rather avoid it. So three things to do to avoid criticism. Firstly, do nothing. Do nothing. Secondly, say nothing, and thirdly, be nothing. Uh, That is the advice. My suspicion is that in many of our contexts, if you do nothing, you will be criticized uh, for doing nothing. So I'm not sure it's great advice. But the fact is, criticism is part of life, and sadly, it is an inevitable part of the Christian life as well. We live in the same real world as everybody else. There are going to be times when we receive criticism, when we receive rebuke, and sometimes it will be the case that we didn't deserve it. Sometimes we will be criticized unfairly. Now, it's bad enough being criticized when you know you deserve it, when you know you've done something wrong, but it's much harder, isn't it, when you are criticized by others, criticized sharply, and actually you know It's not your fault. And I'm sure there are some of us this morning who live with unfair criticism quite regularly. Maybe someone in your family is always critical of you. Maybe someone where you work is always critical of you. So with that in mind, let's have a look at Psalm 7. We will learn from David about how to deal with this kind of situation. Um, Have a look at the title of the psalm, just above verse 1. It is part of the text of the uh, actual scripture, and uh, often these titles tell us useful little uh, bits and pieces about the psalm. It is a psalm of David. Um, We're told it's a a shigeon, and uh, basically no one knows what that means, but that's what it was. Uh, If you look at the footnote, it says probably a musical or liturgical term. That means they don't really know. Okay, so we don't know quite what it is, this kind of psalm. And we're told that it concerns the words of Cush, and we don't know who he is, okay, other than he's uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's lots we don't know about this psalm, but the thing that is very, very clear is that David faced enormous criticism. He had a lot of enemies, and this guy Cush seems to have been the main figurehead. And it's also very clear that David didn't deserve this opposition. He hadn't provoked it. He hadn't been a muppet. He hadn't been a a, a jerk, and now he's getting some justifiable flack. No, accusations are being made against David that are completely untrue. And so this is a psalm for God's people when they face undeserved opposition. It's a wonderful model to us of how to be a faithful man or woman of God in that context. And again, it may well be that some of us are in that context at the moment, maybe in a milder way than David, but maybe we're getting a bit of unfair comments from other people. People make accusations perhaps about what we believe and what that means that aren't fair. Some of us may be experiencing this at a more serious level. Maybe people are slandering you unfairly and it's causing damage. And for some of us, this just isn't the issue at all in our lives right now. And if that's the case, rejoice, be glad. But the fact that it happens to David, the fact that it happens to some of God's people, means that it can happen to any of God's people. And so actually the best time to learn how to respond to unfair criticism is probably before you receive it. So for all of us, this psalm is going to be useful. And two things in particular we see about how David responds, and you'll see those on the handout. The first thing we see from this psalm is his trust in God, verses 1 to 5. Um, Have a look at verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. At the very outset, we can see that David's confidence is in God. Okay, notice that this psalm is a prayer to God. Actually, it's a song to God. And so David isn't just writing musings to put out there for for other people to look at. This isn't just a random status update on Facebook. Uh, No, David goes to God to offload his heart. He's not posting this online. He's bringing this before God. And friends, that is a great lesson for us. As we experience difficulty, the very first place we need to go is to the Lord. I hope there are other people we can speak to. But actually, the very first person we need to go to is God. Um, I shared a flat once with a a good friend. And uh, his girlfriend once phoned him up. In a, a bit of a state about something, and I, he was in the same room as me. I wasn't eavesdropping, but I just heard him say to her, "Have you prayed about it yet?" And he said to her, "Please pray about it first, and then phone me back." Okay. And then he took his phone off the hook and just hid it. No, he didn't really. Um, but that—that's a good challenge for us: is our first instinct to go to God when we're in trouble? Uh, The great Christian of the uh, mid-20th century, Corrie ten Boom, once said, Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? In other words, if it's the last resort, it's your spare tire. And notice that the God David takes this to is a refuge. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. David doesn't just have a history of talking to God, he has a history of trusting God. And because he trusts God, he's come to know that God is his refuge. Um, several years ago, I was hiking with a, a friend up in Scotland, and we hiked up the highest mountain in the United Kingdom, a mountain called Ben Nevis. And although it was meant to be July, and officially it was meant to be summer, uh, Scottish weather hadn't got the memo. And so we were actually up at the top in the middle of a a pretty furious storm. Um, I think there was even hail at that time. And yet we made it all the way up to the top. And one of the things we found there was a stone shelter, just a, a little kind of stone hut. And we kind of poked our way inside and found a little group of people up there also sheltering from the storm people that you could share a bit of food and and soup with and a place where you could dry uh, change back into dry clothes uh, to make your journey back down again it was a wonderful refuge and David says that is what God has come to be to him a place where he knows he is safe where he is protected And that is something David desperately needs at this time. He has a whole mob of enemies pursuing him. End of verse 1, save me from all my pursuers. Cush is one of them. Turns out there's a whole load of them. And it seems that they are after David even at this very moment. And if they get to David, it's going to be very bad indeed. So he says, verse 2, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Um, I remember watching a a TV show about uh, wildlife in in Africa, and it showed a a group of lions, a pride, that's the the word, isn't it, for a group of lions, that had been really struggling. Uh, They were kind of virtually starved, and they were so desperate for food that they took down an elephant. This sort of apparently is very rare, but these lions were so desperate to eat that a group of them went after something as big as an elephant. And in their desperation, they brought this thing down and tore it to shreds. And it was one of those kind of TV shows you don't really want to watch. It's just so unpleasant to see. And David says that is what's going to happen to him if his enemies get hold of him. They're not just going to do him in a bit and move on. They're not just going to humiliate him. They're not just going to make life a bit miserable. David says they will end him if they get to him. And so David trusts in God. God is his refuge. Doesn't mean David has never done this before, but he's going to give it a go. No, David is showing us that this is what he does. This is his MO. When the tough time comes, David is saying, God, here I am again. This is what I do when things are difficult. I come to you as my refuge. So, friends, I guess the challenge for us is, are we getting to know God well enough to know that he is that kind of God to us? Is God a kind of insurance policy that's tucked away just in case? Or is God someone that we are daily getting to know and seeing what kind of God he is to us? Because David says, the more we come to God, the more we know him, the more we will find he is a refuge. David had great reason to think God was a refuge. Friends, we've got even more. Looking back from from the point of view of those who live after the coming of Jesus Christ, we've seen even more how God protects his people. Uh, Think about it. For something to be a refuge it has to take the thing that you are trying to shelter from, doesn't it? So a refuge in a storm can only be a refuge if it's the thing that is getting hit by the storm so that you can be protected under it. Well, friends, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the most amazing refuge. Jesus taking the storm of all the the punishment for our sin so that in him we can shelter and be protected. God has protected us from the most ferocious thing in the universe. He is surely our refuge. So we see David's confidence before God. Next, we see his conscience before God. He knows God as a refuge. He also knows that God is the one who sees the secret things in our hearts. So look at what David invites God to do in the next couple of verses. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. You see, David is inviting God to scrutinize him. And we can see what it is David's enemies are accusing him of. People say he's guilty. They say he's done evil to a friend in verse 4, that he's ripped off an enemy. And David's immediate response to that accusation isn't to say, well, that's ridiculous, how could they? I would never do that. David's first response to criticism isn't outrage. David's response is to say, God, you know me. I think I'm innocent of this. But I don't want to be kidding myself. So, Lord, if I'm missing something, please make it clear to me. Friends, that shows amazing humility. David has a a very tender conscience. He believes he's innocent, but he still says to God, you know, I wouldn't put it past me. David doesn't assume he's right. And so he invites God to examine him. And friends, it also shows great transparency. David's conscience is open to God. David knows his weaknesses. He knows he could potentially be guilty of anything. And yet he's able to talk to God about that. I don't know what the system is here in Malaysia when you apply to a university, but back in the UK, we used to have to fill out this uh, form called a UCAS form. And it was always a bit of a headache, as forms tend to be. But one of the bits that was most taxing was a section where you had to write a personal statement. And you've already answered all the kind of academic questions, all the procedural ones. This was meant to be something that showed the kind of person you were. And certainly for myself and for many of my friends applying to university, I think that that personal statement was possibly the best piece of fiction we had ever written in our lives. (laughs) I don't know if you have an equivalent over here as you apply for these things. But you try and make yourself sound as rounded and as interested in the world around you as you possibly could. So uh, I remember teaching my best friend to play chopsticks on the piano... He then wrote Accomplished Pianist on his personal statement. And friends, I mention that because I think we often try to present God with a, a kind of personal statement version of ourselves, don't we? We do know what we're like, but when we come before God, it's as if our inner lawyer suddenly kicks in and we kind of try and make it so that we're, we're not as bad as we are. Well, that is ineffective. In verse 9, we're told that God is the one who tests, who searches the minds and hearts. So you can't hide anything from God anyway. But actually, David shows us it's just not necessary to hide things from God. David has the security in God to be completely open before him. And again, friends, is that not the case for us? As those who trust in all that Jesus has done, we know that we come to God not on the basis of our own performance. We come simply because of God's grace and God's love. And that means we can talk to God about the very worst things in our hearts. I remember talking to a a much older Christian some time ago. And uh, we were talking about our own response to sin. And he said something that really struck me. And I think it's a real sign of, of maturity in his faith. He said, you know, I actually want God to know about the sin in my life. He said, actually, I want God to know because I want God to help me. He doesn't fear God anymore. He knows he's secure in Christ. And because of that, he, he wants God to know about the very hardest, the very worst things about him. And we see that with David, a wonderful transparency. Lord, just, just please examine my heart. Show me where I'm wrong. That is a sign of someone who knows that God is his refuge. I don't have to hide anything. So David trusts in God. That's the first thing we see. Then secondly... Uh, in the second part of this psalm, we see that David has a great concern for justice. Uh, verses 6 to 16. So have a look at verse 6. Uh, David prays, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Uh, David calls on God to bring about justice. And David talks a lot here about the word Judgment. And I think David uses the word slightly differently to the way we often do. I think we often use the word judgment to mean condemnation. If we say to someone, you're judging me, we often mean you're, you're condemning me. But in the Old Testament, judgment was both punishment and rescue. It was just God making things right. Remember, that the, the judges in the book of Judges were the saviors. So when David prays for judgment, he's not saying, have a go at everyone. David is saying, please make everything right. And we see a few things about the judgment that David uh, prays for. We see his cry for judgment in verse 6. He prays, judge my enemies. David knows he's being wrongly treated. He knows he's got a God who is committed to justice and a God who is angry with wrongdoing. So David prays that justice would be done for his enemies. Uh, Verse 7, David knows that what he's asking for is part of a wider plan of God, that actually one day God is going to gather all people before him and bring everyone to justice. And so David prays, if you like, that all peoples would be judged. Verse 7, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. David is conscious that one day God is going to make everything right. All people are going to be brought before him. David is aware of that. We should be aware of that too. In Acts 17, Paul says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But David doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, judge my enemies and judge everybody else. Verse 8, David says, judge me. So verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord. And he says, judge me according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. That sounds a bit odd to us. It's not David saying, I'm perfect, so I'm, you know, judge me, Lord, because I'm, I'm flawless. No, David is not claiming to be perfect. David is saying that in this particular instance, he has acted with integrity and he wants to be vindicated. So in that sense, he is saying, Lord, please please make this right. Show that I've not done anything wrong here. But notice what happens next. Uh, As David thinks about his own situation, he can't help but be conscious of the situation of many other people too. So verse 9, he says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. It's interesting. David prays for others. He knows that there are other people who are being treated badly, uncrit- uh, criticized unfairly, and he prays for them too. Again, that's a wonderful uh, reflection of what it means to trust in God. David is affected by his own situation, but he doesn't become self-preoccupied. He's aware that he is but one of many who find themselves being treated unfairly. And friends, that is a perspective we should share. A sign that we are dealing with hardship in a healthy way is that it doesn't make us self-preoccupied. So David has a great concern for his own justice, but his concern doesn't stop with him. He's concerned with the justice for anyone in his kind of situation. So we see David's uh, cry for judgment. Uh, We see next the God of judgment that he's crying to. As well as thinking about the judgment, David thinks about the judge. Uh, Verse 10 He is the God uh, who saves the upright in heart. He's the God who is powerful. Uh, My shield is with God. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is righteous. He's holy. He will never do anything wrong. There will never be a miscarriage of justice with him. And David says, this God, uh, verse 11, feels indignation every day. Now, indignation means uh, not just that you're a bit cross. Indignation is is fury. Okay, if someone is, is cross, they might frown a bit and be a bit grumpy. If someone is indignant, that is when veins start to appear all over their forehead, okay? That is what indignation means. And with humans, indignation is often a very horrible thing. Uh, We flare up at the wrong kind of thing. We don't know how to express our anger in a godly way. But it is very, very different with God. God's indignation actually is an expression of his concern about evil and injustice. God longs for justice to be done. God longs for an end to suffering. So, friends, let me ask you this. As you see suffering and injustice around the world, do you think you are more sensitive to injustice and suffering than God is? Do you think you are more concerned for justice than God is? No, David is saying every single day, God is far more scandalized by injustice than we ever will be. And therefore, he's a God who is ready to bring that justice to pass. So verse 12, David says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God is ready to punish evil. It's amazing imagery. God is is armed and poised, that the sword is ready, that the the bow is already bent in anticipation. He has the resources to bring justice to, Any time he chooses. And notice too, there is a way out for the evildoer. Verse 12, if a man does not repent. In other words, the reason God isn't bringing justice right now is so that those who would find themselves on the wrong side of God's judgment have a chance to repent. David knows that. Actually, David longs even for his enemies to come back to God and to know him. Well, that is a God of judgment. And then David shows us something of the shape of that judgment God will bring. So, what do you think about when you think about God's judgment? What comes to mind when you think about God's judgment? For most of us, it would be lightning bolts from the sky. It would be kind of scenes from a disaster movie, kind of civilization being... Blown to smithereens let's see from these verses what God's judgment looks like so verse 17 sorry verse uh, verse 14 David says behold the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies he makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. Interesting, the picture of judgment that David gives us here is of someone who is evil reaping the consequences of their own evil. So in verse 14 you get this amazing image of a man conceiving. Of a man conceiving. Being pregnant. Uh, some of us may remember that daft Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in the 80s where he became pregnant. Anyone saw that? I can't even remember what it was called. Junior, that was it, uh, the movie Junior. But uh, this is not that kind of thing. Uh, David is showing us a man who is pregnant with evil. He says, Evil and mischief have been conceived in his heart. And yet the result is that what he gives birth to hurts him. So he makes a pit, and yet he's the one who falls into it. He's the one who makes mischief, verse 16, but it's his own skull that gets hurt by it. And so sin has something like a a boomerang effect on it. Australia just uh, this last week and uh, on one afternoon I had a bit of free time I was just walking through the local park and I came across a guy with a boomerang in his hand and he was trying to throw it and it kept just kind of falling straight to the ground it wasn't kind of turning around and coming back and he saw me watching him and he came up to me and said do you know how to, f- to throw a, boomer- a boomerang and uh, I would just arrived that day so I said no I'm English you're Australian <laughs> You're the one who's meant to show me, but he he couldn't quite get the hang of it. But that is the kind of image David is thinking about in this passage. The way God expresses his judgment in history is that sin comes back to bite you, even in this life. Uh, We had Romans 1 as our... Uh, other reading this morning, because actually Paul shows us that very same thing happening. Just turn back to Romans uh, chapter 1. Paul talks about how he loves the gospel, because in in the gospel you see God's righteousness being revealed and, and being given to people as a gift, God finding a way of of clothing sinful people in the righteousness of Jesus. But he also says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed as well. The wrath of God is being revealed even in the present age. And he shows us what that looks like. As God reveals his wrath, he gives people over to the consequences of their sin. So we see people... uh, In verse 21, they exchange the glory of God, verse 23, for idolatry. And the result in verse 24 is that God gives them up to their sin. And we see that pattern again and again in Romans 1. People sin, they exchange what they should know and what they should do for something sinful. And God gives them up to live in the consequences of their sin In other words, Paul is saying sin is something that entangles us. It's something that controls and harms us. And it makes life messy. It backfires on us. We end up being the ones who are worst off. And David says that is the judgment that you see from God. He gives people up to the consequences of their sin. He makes their sin come back and bite them. But friends, actually, that's an anticipation of something else. Because again, at the cross of Jesus, we don't see God giving us up to sin. We see God giving up his son to the consequences of our sin. We exchange the glory of God for sin... And But by giving up his son, God is able to exchange our sin for the glory of God. So back to the end of Psalm 7 and verse 17. As David wraps up, he says, verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord The Most High. David sees in all that God does his utter rightness. God does all things in a way that are fitting. God is never unrighteous. And so David will give thanks to him even in the midst of of suffering, even while he's still being pursued as he's writing this psalm, being pursued by his enemies. David gives thanks to the Lord and sings praises. To his name. Well, friends, as we close, why don't we say together verse 17 and make that the beginning of our response to God's word this morning. Let's say together verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Amen.